Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. There are uh, a few of us that are here today, so I am not saying good morning to uh, an empty church. There are about five of us here, so uh, I do want to wish all of you a happy Sabbath. And to those of you that are watching at home, thank you for inviting us into your home today. I wish you a very happy Sabbath. Uh, it is a beautiful day. The sun is shining. We're supposed to be in the 80s today, and God has certainly blessed us with this Sabbath day. I wish that you all were here, uh, but until that time comes, we will continue to bring you these messages and uh, the children's story and everything that we have to offer uh, live stream and through video. And um, we just cannot wait until we are back together again in the church as a family to, uh, to fellowship and to be with one another. Uh, before we begin, uh, let's take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the Sabbath. Uh, Father, we're not looking at these times as, uh, as difficult as they may be as anything but uh, a chance to, to glorify you, to worship you, to thank you for being our God, to thank you for leading us through all of this, Father, for giving us the opportunity to go out and to, to speak of you, to tell people about you, Father. Uh, be with us uh, for the rest of this Sabbath day, Father. Uh, bless those that are, that are struggling at this point, Father. Give us an opportunity. Bring us to those people. Embolden us. Strengthen us, Father, uh, so we can go out and be a light unto their path, Father. Um, as for me, Father, just, just take me out of the equation. Use me as a vessel this morning, Father. Let the very words that I am speaking come directly from your throne. We thank you. We love you. and We praise you when we do this in his holy and precious name, our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to uh, thank uh, Cynthia for, uh, for the opening uh, remarks this morning, the Abraham family, the Tishy family, the Mosley family, Gabriel Chiguere, who did uh, an excellent job this morning in his, uh, in his story, Dr. French and his uh, adorable children, and for the Rapala children. Uh, it is great to see people. It's great to see that more people are actually sending in their videos and sharing their videos, and of course, that's what we want. Even if you just send in a video to say hello and, and give a greeting, uh, that's what people are looking for. We want to see the familiar faces. It makes us feel at home. It makes us feel like one body uh, once again. You know, during this time, it, uh, it is very easy uh, to, to complain about things. Uh, we're complaining about the fact, and I certainly have complained about the fact that I can't get a haircut. I complained about the fact that I went to the store and I couldn't find toilet paper and I couldn't find hand sanitizer and I couldn't find all these other things. I have to stay at home. The gym is closed, so I'm complaining about the fact that I can't get to the gym. All of these things that we, that we see, the things that we became accustomed to, and we're complaining now because we don't have them anymore. And this week, I heard uh, over the past several weeks, I keep hearing this phrase being mentioned that we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, meaning we're, we're hopefully starting to come out of this, and so we're looking forward, and there is this light that we can see. And I thought to myself, well, that's all well and good, but as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, let's not wait until we get to the end of the tunnel. We should be a light right now to people. 
We should be a light to everyone that is around us, even if we are going through. And we know people that are struggling. We know people that have lost jobs. We know people that, that, that don't know where their next check is coming from or where their income is coming from, maybe where their next meal is coming from. We know people like that. Maybe you are going through that, but there's still light. God still gives us light. He leads us. He loves us. And we have to be a light unto other people that are around us. So let's not wait for that. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So I'm going to challenge all of us today, myself included, all of you that are watching at home, be a light unto people today. Let's not wait until we get to the end of that tunnel. Victory in the valley. Unfortunately, in order for me to tell you the opening part of my story this morning, I'm going to have to do something that is very painful. I'm going to have to date myself. It's really the only way that I can do this. This is the first video game that my sister and I ever played together. Way, way back when, on 826, in 826 on 48th Street in Brooklyn, New York, when we were in that small apartment, when we were in our one bedroom, which my sister and I shared with bunk beds, this was the first video game. And it is exactly what you see. It is this, this table tennis game. And, and you had controls on the side, and you controlled those those little paddles on the side and your control would move it up and down and that little dot that you see would just go across from one to the other, from one to the other. And I'm going to tell you, to get to eight was really difficult because it was very hard to miss that ball. You'd have to hope that somebody was dozing off in order to miss that ball. And, and they would make it a little bit more difficult. And what they would do is you could make an adjustment and that paddle would become smaller. So now it was just a little bit harder to hit that ball. That was the video game. Now, certainly years later, as we got older, other video games came out. But this is what we had when we were kids. So because of that, you had to rely on other things to keep you entertained. So we played a lot of board games. Board games were huge when I was a kid. All different kinds of games. We played a lot of card games. Lots of different things to keep us. We didn't have phones. The television had maybe nine channels on it. There was no cable TV. So you had to do this. This is what you had to do as children. You, you spent a lot of time together. Now, when I was, uh, when I was a little boy, I developed uh, this thing. I developed this characteristic about myself. And I was labeled as a sore loser. Rightfully so. I could complain about it, but rightfully so I was. And if my sister Andrea is watching this now, or if she watches this later, she is going to be shaking her head vehemently, agreeing with the fact that I was a sore loser as a kid. And undoubtedly she's looking over at my nephew because she said that I passed that on to him and she's saying, see, I told you that's how your uncle was too. I was a sore loser. I hated to lose. It was so bad, my sister and I believe my family members got together and they said, you know what, just let him win. It's so much better, just let him win. Because if he loses, 
he's going to complain and he's going to cry and he's just going to get mad. We don't want to have to deal with that. I would rather, they would rather deal with a gloating seven or eight-year-old kid than have to deal with a kid that was going to get upset because he lost the game. Now, I'd love to tell you that as I got older that that changed, but unfortunately, I can't tell you that. As I got into my, my early to late teen years, it seemed to get a little worse because now I was getting involved in competitive sports. And when you're involved in sports, losing is not really something that you look forward to doing. Nobody wants to lose when you're on a team, and I certainly didn't like to do that. It was said when I was playing, I wasn't the most talented guy, I wasn't the best player, I wasn't the guy that people wanted to pick first. I was somewhere in the middle of the pack, but people would say about me that I had this desire to win so much so that I would run through a brick wall to make a play so the team would win. That's how passionate I was about winning. In probably the late 80s, maybe the early 90s, there was a clothing company that came out. It was called No Fear. They were like Nike. They weren't as big as Nike. They used to put out these t-shirts and these pants and things like that, and they would have sayings on them. You know, these sayings that kind of like build you up and talk about games and things like that. The first shirt that I ever bought from No Fear, I wore all the time because I absolutely loved what the shirt said. Second place is the first loser. That was my mentality. There was no such thing as people telling you, oh, you know what, you came so close, second place is good, you were almost first, or, or don't worry, you'll get him next year. No, no. If you came in second, you were the first loser. That's, that's how I felt. No, that was not, and I certainly wouldn't have been able to make it today where everybody gets a trophy. No, somebody wins, and the person that comes in second and they're on, they're the losers. That was the mentality that I had. Inherently, if you've played sports or you don't even have to play sports, you just know a little bit about sports, we all know what winning looks like. If you are a sports guy, you know that winning looks like the, 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 the winning hockey team at the end of the season, the ones who raised the Stanley Cup, they're the winners, they're the victors. In baseball, if you carry around the World Series trophy, they're the winners, they're the victors, and so on and so forth. In life, if you're, a, if you're a salesman and you're going up against a lot of people and you close that big deal, the winner is the guy or the girl that comes out and they're pumping their fists and they're going, yes, I closed that deal. They're the victor. If you're a kid in school and you turn out to be class valedictorian, you're sitting at the top of your class you are the victor. Victory. Go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession, and die on the mountain which you ascend, and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Seems like a, an odd scripture verse to use, doesn't it? I mean, we're talking about mountains and we're talking about death. But inside these two verses 
is a very, very compelling story. And the story that we're going to talk about this morning, you're going to see a different kind of victory. The victory in this story is very different from the victory that I would look for as a kid, the victory that I would look for as a teenager, the victory that I look for today when I watch sporting events. Victory in the Bible is often very different than the victories that we see in this world. So I am going to ask you, I'm going to ask the few of you that are here, I'm asking all of you that are at home, you know if the church was full, everybody knows the question that I'm going to ask at this point. If my brother Donnie is watching, he knows the question I'm going to ask, who has their sword with them today? If you are at home, get your sword, you're going to need your sword, and of course that is the Word of God. Today is going to be more like a Bible study than anything else. We are going to spend an awful, awful lot of time in Scripture. So please, please have your Bibles with you. Normally, I would put a lot of the verses up on the screen, but because you're not here and you're at home, we're just going to read all of them. I will tell you the verses that we're in, uh, so please follow along, uh, along with this story this morning. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, it says, But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. See, Egypt has a problem here. You see, the dealing with Egypt by Joseph during the famine brought great favor to the Israelites. So much so that the, the king publicly acknowledged that it was through the merciful intercession of the God of Joseph that Egypt enjoyed plenty, while other nations around them enjoyed little. They were in the famine. But after Joseph's passing, the Bible tells us, beginning in verse number 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. The king wasn't ignorant of Joseph. I mean, certainly he heard of Joseph. He was just choosing not to acknowledge Joseph. We can't have this about these people. They're growing too big. They're getting too mighty. They're mightier than we are. What are we going to do? Verse 13, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. But once again, the more that they were afflicted, the more they multiplied, and the more that they grew. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the midwives of whom the names of one were Shifra and the other was Poah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. The Bible tells us the women feared God and did not execute this cruel mandate. The Lord approved their course and prospered them. <clears throat> That's not even working. Verse 22. 
So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Listen to what Spirit of Prophecy tells us. While this decree was in full force, a son was born to Amram and Jochebed, devout Israelites of the tribe of Levi. The babe was a goodly child, and the parents, believing that the time of Israel's release was drawing near and that God would raise up a deliverer for his people, determined that their little one should not be sacrificed. Brother Jeff Marlowe last week, I love, he, he told the story of the birth of Moses, and he, he made several points, but one of the, the strongest points I think that he made when he was talking about this was the, the faithfulness of that one Hebrew woman. One Hebrew woman. God heard the mother's fervent prayers. Prophecy goes on to tell us she felt confident that he had been preserved for some great work. And she knew that he must soon be given up to his royal mother, to be surrounded with influences that would tend to lead him away from God. All this rendered her more diligent and careful in his instruction, more so than her other children. She endeavored to imbue his mind with the fear of God and the love of truth and justice and earnestly prayed that while he might be preserved from every corrupting influence, she showed him the folly and sin of idolatry and early taught him to bow down and pray to the living God who alone could hear him and help him in every emergency. How far-reaching in its results was the influence of that one Hebrew woman. To a very great extent, the mother holds in her hands the destiny of her children. I am way too often guilty when I talk about the raising of children and the upbringing of children to talk directly to guys. It's not that I intentionally take the mothers out of the picture. It's just, it's guys talking to guys. And I'm usually talking to the guys in a way of saying to them and talking to them about their sons. But moms, your role could not be more exalted than it is right here in this story. The responsibility you have in knowing that to a large extent, you hold the destiny of your children in your hands. Quite the responsibility, quite the burden. Knowing that, 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 that what you do and what you say and how you raise them is going to determine how their lives move along. I mean, look back in this story. Look back what was written in Spirit of Prophecy. It's telling us she, she wants to give him the mind of, with the fear of God and the love of truth and earnestly prayed that he might be preserved from every corrupting influence. That's not just for back then, that's for today. We're surrounded by corrupting influences today. And so moms, you're the ones that are holding it. Your prayers are making a difference in your child's lives, but that burden is so great. And yes, you have your husbands there, and as a loving unit, the both of you help raise that child. But notice, notice what this Hebrew woman did. She had a very deep connection with God. Raise your children, parents, raise your children with God as the head of your family. 
One author said, let every mother feel that her moments are priceless. Priceless moments. This is going to bring us to our first point this morning. Great works for the kingdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Wisdom begins with fear of the Lord. You want to do a great work. You want your children to go out and do a great work. You want your children to be ones that are going to go out and forge a path and lead others and lead their friends and lead even adults to a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's one place where it starts, and it begins with the fear of the Lord. And as it said, with the fear of God and the love of truth and justice. That's what we should be praying for for our children. It says she felt confident that he had been preserved for some great work. What was that great work? Let's move forward now to Moses' adult years and his encounter with God at the burning bush. We're going to pick it up now in Exodus chapter 3, verse number 7. Exodus chapter 3, verse number 7. It says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Here's the great work. This here is the great work. Moses is chosen by God to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, undoubtedly, put yourself in Moses' place. He's an older person. He's grown up around these people. What do you think he's going? He has to be thinking about the difficulties that he's going to have to face doing this. He knows them. He knows of their blindness. He knows of their ignorance. He knows of their unbelief. And, and, and most of these people, he thinks they're, they, they, they're destitute of a knowledge of God, and I have to lead them out? God said, I'm going to be with you, but in his mind, he has to know this is not going to be an easy task that he's being called to do. <clears throat> now, there's an incident with Moses that served, I believe, for him as a, as a warning for the responsibility that he was going to have in the position that he held. So an angel appears to him. Now, this angel didn't just come as a normal angel. This angel came with, a, with an intent to destroy Moses. There's no explanation given as to why, but Moses is remembering now in the back of his head that he had disregarded one of God's requirements. He yielded to his wife, and he neglected to perform the rite of circumcision on his youngest son. And such a neglect on the part of the chosen leader could not but lessen the force of the divine precepts upon the people. He had a responsibility. Zipporah, fearing that her husband would be slain, she performs the rite herself, and the angel then permitted Moses to pursue his journey. I think that was a warning. You have to follow the precepts of God. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2.14, and 
I got to tell you, I should probably have this written somewhere in front of me all the time. 2.14 tells you, do all things without complaining and disputing. If we're all being honest, we all have a level of complaining that we do in our lives about various different things. And the Bible tells us you have to do all things without complaining, without disputing. And man, could the Israelites have used this verse. Because the very thing that preoccupied the mind of Moses, the very thing that he was concerned about, the unbelief and the blindness and the ignorance of the people of Israel, boy, did it come true. Let me give you a quick synopsis of just some of the things that the Israelites complained about, and I'm going to give you the, the book and the chapter that you'll find it in. The people complained to Moses that because of him and his talk of a promised land, Pharaoh made things worse for them. Exodus chapter 5. The people complained and said to Moses, let us alone. Exodus chapter 14. The people complained about the bitter water. Exodus chapter 15. The people complained about being hungry. Exodus chapter 16. The people forsake the Lord. Exodus 32. The people complained about how difficult it looked to conquer the giants in the land, so they refused to enter the promised land. Numbers 14. The key leaders rebel against Moses. Number 16. The people complained about again and they accused Moses of killing God's people. Number 16. And there's more. That's just a snapshot of the things that the people are complaining about. And in the midst of all of this rebellion, in the midst of all this murmuring and all of this faithlessness, there's Moses. There's Moses, his faithfulness constantly on display, and he's continually, continually interceding for these people. The complaints are going off the chart, and Moses is standing there, and he said, no, I am going to intercede. In one of the instances we just talked about, the Israelites refused to enter the land of Canaan. And in Numbers 14, chapter 2, or verse chapter 14, verse 2, I should say, it says, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Then they say, this Moses guy isn't working out. You gotta get us a different leader. And not only get us a different leader, take us back to Egypt. Then God tells Moses in Numbers 14, verse 11, Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I have performed among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses filled with the compassion that he carried with him, says beginning in verse 15. Now if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring these people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, 
but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. That was Moses. There was a particular complaint, though. This complaint had far-reaching consequences, I'm sure, than Moses had any idea. Let's now go to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, and we're going to pick it up in verse number 2. And once again, our title this morning is Victory in the Valley. It says, Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on, be on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So he strikes that rock. What's the significance of that rock? From patriarchs and prophets it says this, the smitten rock was a figure of Christ. And through this symbol, the most precious spiritual truths are taught. As the life-giving waters flowed from the smitten rock, so from Christ, smitten of God, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the stream of salvation flows for a lost race. As the rock had been once smitten, so Christ was to be once offered to bear the sins of many. Our Savior was not to be sacrificed a second time, and it only is necessary for those who seek the blessings of his grace to ask in the name of Jesus, pouring forth the heart's desire in penitential prayer. Such prayer will bring before the Lord of hosts the wounds of Jesus, and then will flow forth afresh the life-giving blood symbolized by the flowing of the living water for Israel. The water did not, however, continually flow from Horeb wherever in their journeyings they wanted water. There from the clefts of the rock gushed out water beside their encampment. It was Christ. It was Jesus. By the power of his word that caused the refreshing stream to flow for Israel. 1 Corinthians 10.4 says they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Isaiah 48, 21 says, And they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock, and the waters gushed out. 
Point number one, great works for the kingdom begins with a fear of the Lord. Point number two this morning, Christ, our rock, our living water. Christ combines those two types. He is our rock. He is our living water. So just before the Hebrew host reached Kadesh, the living stream that they had had for so many years ceased. It was the Lord's purpose now that he was going to test his people. Let's now go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 2, and let's pick it up in verse number 3. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse number 3. You have skirted this mountain long enough. Turn northward and command the people, saying, You are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. Verse number 6. You shall buy food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall buy also buy water from them with money that you may drink. They were now, at this point, they had the sight of the hills of Canaan in their sights. A few days' march would bring them to the borders of the Promised Land. But before God could permit them to go in, they have to show that they believe his promise. The water ceased before they had reached Edom. Here now is an opportunity for the children of God to, to show that even just for a little time that they would walk by faith instead of by sight. How are we walking today, brothers and sisters? Are we accepting and holding on to the promises of God? Do we make that a part of our lives? And do we walk as if that promise has already been fulfilled inside our lives? Are we walking by faith or do we need to see? Let's go to Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse number 2. Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse number 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought us up, this, brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. They are within seeing the hills of Canaan, and they don't have any water to drink. So once again, the unbelief of God's people is on display. Verse number 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. Speak to the rock. The rock had been struck once before, 
And remember we said it was a symbol of Jesus. Once wounded, once sacrificed for our transgression, not to be wounded again. Verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. In a moment of complete, and if we are being honest with ourselves, understandable impatience, Moses loses his cool, and he strikes the rock twice. God still supplied the water for his people, but Moses had made a huge mistake. There is um, there's a phrase that I heard a Christian apologist use um, several years ago. I use the phrase all the time now because it seems very appropriate. It seems very appropriate to, to talk about and describe sometimes the struggles that we go through. Sometimes we think that there's no reason behind it, but many times that there are. And the phrase goes, we get to choose our actions, but we don't get to choose the consequences. See, Moses chose his actions, even though it was a, an impatient moment, even though I could imagine what was heaped upon him at this point after so many years, he still chose his action, even though he had been told what to do, and he doesn't get to choose the consequences. Wearied with the continual murmuring and the rebellion of the people, Moses, for that moment, lost sight of his almighty helper. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Wow. The first word that I thought of when I read this story was devastated. I mean, if you're Moses, you're devastated at this news. You've done all of this work for all of these years. You've made, again, if we're being honest, what doesn't seem like that big of an error. And now the prize, now the victory for Moses is taken away from him. This is a, a valley moment for Moses. The question that I had was why? I mean, surely God could overlook this, right? After all, Moses wasn't guilty of some egregious sin. Moses was guilty of something that we all do. We all tend to, at times, lose our patience and we speak rashly sometimes. Psalm 106.33 says, so that he spoke rashly with his lips. I mean, who of us hasn't done that? Three brief reasons why. First, you see the very words that were spoken by Moses and Aaron. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? He and Aaron at that moment had assumed a power 
that only belongs to God. They were not going to be the cause of water coming out of that rock. That alone belonged to God, and yet they said, must we give you this water? Second, Moses and Aaron, they, they made no effort to, to stem the, the current popular feeling that was going on. And, and as leaders, had they themselves shown what they had shown so often, that, that unwavering faith in God, the people may have been swayed. The people may have been emboldened. The people may have looked at it and said, well, maybe we could feed off of their faithfulness and maybe we can, we can quiet and withstand this burden, this test that's been placed before us as leaders. And this goes for us today too. As leaders, it was their duty, it is our duty that we have to put forth every possible effort that we can to bring about a better state of things before we go to God and ask him to do it. What is the part that we're playing in that? What is the part that Aaron and Moses played? And lastly, by the second smiting of the rock, the very significance of the beautiful figure of Christ was destroyed. When it was declared that because of this one sin that Moses and Aaron were not going to enter Canaan, the people knew that God at that point, he's not a respecter of persons. It's not about the person. It's about the action. And that he will surely punish the transgressor. The transgression was known throughout the entire congregation. And if it had been passed by lightly, if God looked at this and said, okay, we're going to let this go, the impression to the people would have been given that unbelief and the impatience under some great provocation might be excused in those in responsible positions. I've used this word so often in sermons, influence. As leaders, Moses and Aaron had influence. What they did mattered to the people that were around them. Not even the integrity and the faithfulness of Moses could avert the retribution of what he had done. God, don't forget, had forgiven the people greater transgressions. I mean, you look at this and you go, okay, you mean to tell me that the people didn't do things worse? They weren't punished like that. Listen to this. The greater the light and privileges granted to man, the greater is his responsibility, the more aggravated his failure, and the heavier his punishment. The greater light that we've been given, the greater the responsibility that we have. I love how one author says, the burdens placed upon Moses were very great. Few men will ever be so severely tried as he was, yet this was not allowed to excuse his sin. God has made ample provision for his people, and if they rely upon his strength, they will never become the sport of circumstances. I complain about my circumstances all the time. The, the, the position that I'm in, the things that I have to deal with, never has it even come close to what Moses had to deal with. God makes a way for his people when we rely on him and less on ourselves. And I got to tell you, through all of this, 
I don't think I can deal with complaining people, even though I am probably one of them. I don't think I can deal with complaining people probably more than a few hours. Uh, that's just me. I really don't think that I can. Moses did it for years and years and years, and yet his character shows through in all of this. He knew that he was going to have to die, yet not even for a moment had he faltered in his care for Israel. He faithfully sought to prepare the congregation to enter the promised inheritance that was given to them. Deuteronomy chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, says, Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds. I pray. Let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and, your eye, and lift your eyes toward the west, the north, the south, and the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. Moses is going to the top of the mountain, but I got to tell you, Moses had to feel like he was in the deepest valley. Go up and see the land that's been promised, but you're not going there. Spirit of prophecy says Moses turned from the congregation and in silence and alone made his way up the mountainside. He went to the mountain of Nebo to the top of Pisgah. I am going to implore all of you, read the chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets on the death of Moses. Incredible, incredible chapter. I would love to go through the entire chapter. We can't. But I'm going to tell you that on the mountain is laid out before Moses the earth's history. He gets to see everything. And the final scene that he is shown is the earth freed from the curse. It's lovelier than the fair land of promise so lately spread out before him. He now gets to see that there is no sin and death can no longer enter. There, the nations of the saved find their eternal home. Then it says, like a tired warrior, he lay down to rest. And my brothers and sisters, here comes Moses' victory. Christ himself, with the angels who had buried Moses, came down from heaven to call forth the sleeping saint. Satan had exulted at his success in causing Moses to sin against God and thus come under the dominion of death. The power of the grave had never been broken. For the first time, Christ was about to give life to the dead. Moses came forth from the tomb, glorified, and ascended with his deliverer to the city of God. The God of heaven understood the suffering that Moses had endured. He had noted every act of faithful service through those long years of conflict and trial. On the top of Pisgah, God called Moses to an inheritance infinitely more glorious than the earthly Canaan. 
our final point this morning. Great works for the kingdom begins with a fear of the Lord. Second point, Christ, our rock, our living water. And finally, our greatest and most important victory is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Revelation 22:12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. To give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. You see, Moses doesn't enter that promised land. Moses is not carried on the shoulder of the Israelites into the promised land. That, to me, was victory. That's what victory would look like in this world. The greatest victory that he could ever have imagined was given to Moses when Jesus came down. And he goes with Jesus to heaven. That's our victory. That is the greatest victory that we can ever imagine. And we can only find that in Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back soon, my brothers and sisters. Jesus is coming back. His reward is going to be with him. And the victory, I pray, that all of us would receive is like no victory you will ever experience here on this earth. Maybe you've never experienced, maybe you've never played sports, maybe you've never experienced your hand being raised as the winner. Maybe your life has been defined with trial after trial, and certainly there's so much of that now. Maybe your life has seemingly been one valley, one constant valley that you're living in. I'm here to give you some good news this morning, this afternoon, now that we're here in the afternoon. Because with the news that I give you, see, it doesn't matter if you come in second place like it mattered to me so much when I was a kid. It doesn't matter if you finish in 10th place. It doesn't matter if you finished in last. You just have to finish that race. All I wanted to do as a little boy was to win. But in this one, all you have to do is finish. And if you haven't come to that point in your life where you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, just stop where you are right now. Just stop in your tracks. Don't wait anymore. Ask Jesus to forgive you your sins. And I promise you, even before the first word is formed on your lips, he's already forgiven you. And then, and then recognize him as the one as the one and only one who died to take away those very sins in your life, and then invite him to come and live in your heart, to find a place in your heart. Surrender your life to him right now. Accept that life-giving water just like the one that was symbolized from that rock in Horeb. I'm going to end this morning with a quote from I think it's one of my favorite books. It's called Steps to Christ. And it says, The heart of God yearns over his earthly children with a love stronger than death. In giving up his son, he has poured out to us all heaven in one gift. My brothers and sisters, may you find victory today in that gift, and that gift is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we thank you uh, for, this, for this story, for this incredible story. It's, it's so hard sometimes, Father, when we read these stories to, to kind of put ourselves in the place 
of the people that we're reading about. I cannot even for a moment imagine what Moses had to go through all of those years. And through all of that, he stood faithful. He, he interceded for a people that, that turned against him. And he prayed. And he asked for your long suffering. And God, I, I, I don't know of anything better that we could do today, here, and now. To, to, to be that leader, to be that one that steps forward, to be that one that is constantly doing that intercessory prayer for his people, for the people in the church, people in their families, people that are around them, regardless of the situation, to connect with you, Father. Let this be a lesson for all of us. And victory, as I saw it, Father, victory was, was right at Moses' hand. There's the promised land. That's what he wanted to do. That's where he wanted to enter. But you showed him a victory greater than any victory we can imagine in this earth. That victory of one day when your son soon returns, whether we are fortunate enough to be alive or whether we are called forward from the grave, that one day where we are caught up with Jesus in the clouds and we get to spend eternity with you in heaven. That's the victory that I pray we are all pushing for today. And for all of those, Father, for anyone that is hearing the sound of my voice, if they don't know you yet, I pray, Father, that the Spirit moves upon them and that they would make that decision today to give their lives over to you so they too can enjoy and share in that victory one day. Be with us for the rest of the Sabbath day, Father. Thank you for all that you do for us. Carry us through this difficult time, Father. Let your word continually go forward from those that are serving you until that one day when this church is filled again and we are back together as brothers and sisters fellowshipping in the sanctuary that you've given us. We do all of these things and pray all of these things in his holy and precious name, our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.